Chapter 10 of Little Stories of Married Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Stories of Married Life by Mary Stuart Cutting. Not a Sad Story. The little Rhodes boy was dead. The two women who slipped out of the back door of Mrs. Rhodes's house had red eyes and conversed in low tones as they came down the street facing the bitter wind. One of them wore a long cloak of rich fur, which covered her from throat to ankles, but the other only drew her short gray shawl tightly around her and walked in the snow with feet encased in the carpet slippers which she had worn all night. Although one woman was young, and the other well past middle age, they had a certain likeness in the haggard look which watching and grief bring. The early morning light shone wanly over the snow, the white houses with their closed blinds, and the range of white hills beyond. The smoke was beginning to rise from the kitchen chimneys at the back of some of the houses, where occasional lights were seen flickering to and fro, and the smell of the burning wood pervaded the frosty air. "'You're tired,' said the older woman suddenly, as if noticing her companion's fatigue for the first time. "'So are you, Mrs. Rawls.' "'Oh, I'm used to it.' I ain't been rested since Jimmy was born, and that was, let me see, thirty-five year ago. There ain't a week passed in all that time that I haven't planned to rest the next week, but I ain't never come past it yet. She laughed a little as she spoke, and trudged along more vigorously. I guess you ain't often been out at this time in the morning. Not very often, said the other. Her voice was low and sweet, with little tremulous catch in it, as if she were almost exhausted. "'Tisn't but a step now to the house,' said Mrs. Rawls encouragingly. "'I knew the sleigh wouldn't be down for you for a couple of hours yet, "'and it did seem best to leave Miss Rhodes for a while, "'with just Elmira downstairs, after we'd done all we could. "'There'll be neighbors in later, and people to inquire, "'and she won't get much quiet. "'She wants just to be alone with him for a little. "'That dear child.' "'She stopped and choked for a minute. "'There. It don't seem right to cry.' in him so sweet and peaceful. It was mighty good of you to stay these last two nights. Oh, don't, don't, said the other in a pained tone, as if I could have helped wanting to stay. It was so good of her to let me. All that I could do seemed so little. She was so brave, so patient. I shall never forget it. And that sweet child, she stopped at Mrs. Rawls had done. Why, it was only last week that I was walking along here in the snow, and he ran across the street to me and said, It's so slippery here now, Mrs. Armstrong. I'm afraid you'll fall. You had better lean on me. He put out his little hand for me to take, as seriously as you please, and I let him help me over the crossing. I can see his blue eyes now, with that merry light in them, gazing at me. It doesn't seem possible. Hardly a morning passed, said Mrs. Rawls, that was fit for him to be out, that he didn't put his head in at my door and say, how are you, Miss Rawls? Can I do anything for you? He was just like a bit of sunshine, with his curly golden head. It don't appear as if it could be right that such as him should be took. Him as was just born to be a blessing, and his mother without a soul in the world but the boy, and they all in all to each other. I can't understand it nohow. It is very difficult, said the other with a long-drawn sigh. My heart just aches for her. She seems so alone. Is this your house, Mrs. Rawls? It is odd, isn't it, 
that we've both lived here all these years, and yet this is the first time I've ever known you to speak to. I always thought you had such a kind face. I've often felt that I'd like to speak to you, but I didn't know how. Why, my dear, said Mrs. Rawls, stopping on the threshold, her countenance fairly illumined with pleased surprise. You that's so rich and proud and handsome. Why, I never even sensed that you saw me. You afraid to speak to me. Well, that does beat all. But you're just down out now, poor child. Come right in here. I'm going to slip off your cloak, so, and lay you right down on the lounge and make you a good hot cup of coffee. And then you've got to take a little nap before the sleigh comes for you. Almost before she knew Helen Armstrong was lying on the old chintz lounge with Mrs. Rawls' gray shawl wrapped around her feet. The room was small, low-ceilinged, and homely, filled with evidences of daily occupation. Nothing could be further removed from her own luxurious chamber, yet she felt an unwanted sensation of comfort which reached its height after the fragrant coffee had been swallowed, and Mrs. Rawls's motherly hand had smoothed back the pillows for her. Helen caught the hand and held it tight in her own for a minute, before she turned over on one side and closed her eyes. It was years since she had been taken care of. It was she who planned and gave orders for the comfort of others, but she had no near relatives of her own, and hers had been the personal isolation which state and riches bring. With her eyes closed, she thought of many things, of her old school friend Anne Rhodes, whom she had always been fond of, yet with whom she had kept up with a spasmodic intercourse since marriage had claimed both lives. Most of Anne's unfortunate wedded life had been spent in the far west, and when she came back four years ago in straitened circumstances, with a child, the breath of riches and a different way of living still divided them. But with the boy it was otherwise. The little fellow, with his blue eyes, his sunny smile, his trusting heart, and his infant manliness, had touched a chord that had half-frightened Helen to feel vibrating so strongly. That chord belonged to the far past. Another child had made its harmony. A little grave had its depths in Helen's heart, although she had kept it out of sight for many years. It almost scared her to feel that it was still there, and yet it was sweet too. When she put her arms around little Sylvie Rhodes, he was like an angel of resurrection. When she had taken him home in her carriage out of the wet snow not a week ago, his cheeks rosy red, his tongue chattering sweetly, his eyes looking at her so confidingly, she did not dream that it was for the last time. The mortal illness had stolen upon him in the night, and Helen had gone to inquire, and then stayed to help. Somehow, trouble brought back the old days when Anne had leaned on her for comfort and protection. Helen had always felt a nervous dread of a sick room, yet she had stayed, and was glad, glad of it. No one would ever know how many necessaries her money had supplied to the dying child and the stricken mother. John Sylvester Rhodes, aged eight years. The formal words glanced across her thoughts unbidden and brought a sudden hot rush of tears. She wondered whether her husband was surprised that she had stayed away. Perhaps he didn't even know it. They were together so little these days, and she remembered that he had gone on a journey about that syndicate. There would be nobody at home but Kathleen. Kathleen! Her face reddened. Kathleen would have full scope in her absence. Helen wondered if she had taken advantage of it to see that man. No, the girl would do nothing underhand. It was unimaginable that a girl like Kathleen Armstrong, her husband's sister, should have fallen in love with James Sandersfield, now the superintendent of the hat factory in which he had been a common hand for many years. How unfortunate that she had met him on that visit south. It could never have happened in their own town. Helen had felt deeply with her husband's disgust, 
where Kathleen had been immodestly obstinate. What the outcome would be, they did not know. Helen grew hot with the thought. She had forgotten where she was till Mrs. Rawls' voice came to her through the half-open door, crooning an old hymn tune in the kitchen, and the tears came again to her eyes. The dear old soul, she thought, and then once more came the feeling of Sylvie's warm, chubby hand as he helped her over the slippery crossing, and Helen slept. You needn't go in there, said Mrs. Rawls impressively, as one of her friends appeared an hour later. Ms. Armstrong's asleep on the lounge. She's clean beat out watching. I sent the coachman back to the stable when he came for her just now. I wouldn't have her woke. It don't seem possible that little Sylvie's gone, said the newcomer in an awe-stricken voice. I just come up the street now, and I could hardly get here for people stopping me to ask about it. Old Squire Peters himself halted the sleigh and sent Miss Isabel over to inquire. She said if there was anything in the world they could do, to let them know. And she was going home to fix up something that might tempt Ms. Rhodes to eat, for I told them she hadn't taken hardly a mouthful for the last two days. And you know them two ladies in black that moved into the big house on the hill last fall? One of them came up upward and said, You don't mean that that dear little boy with the blue eyes and yellow hair, who lived at the foot of the hill, is dead. And when I said yes, t'was as true as gospel. Though the dear Lord alone knew why it was so, she looked almost as if she were crying, and said, Oh, do you think his mother would mind if I sent her some flowers from our greenhouse? I don't know her at all, but we've had sorrow ourselves, and the dear little boy brought us some goldenrod just the day we came here. It seemed like a welcome to us. I told her I would tell Ms. Rhodes t'was for Sylvie's sake. What beats me, said another woman, who had joined the other two, is why the Lord should take Sylvie the only son of his mother, and she a widow, cut off that child before his time, and leave old grandpa's slave daughter in round, who is near ninety, and ain't never been no good to nobody all his days. There's Amelia Slade with her own mother and sister to care for, and him always a trouble. It does seem that the old might be taken before the young, when they just cumber the ground, like grandpa. Well, I don't think he's much care to Amelia, Miss Beebe, said the first visitor, Mehetable Phelps. She's always grudged him this keep, as far as I see. Not but what he is trying. Ms. Rawls, Ms. Vivi, Hitty Phelps, cried another comer breathlessly. Do somebody come over to Miss Slade's. Grandpa's in a dreadful way, crying and moaning about little Sylvie's death. He says he'd oughter have been took instead, and that he's no good to anybody. Melia's afraid he'll take his life. She never sensed before that he felt his age so. The three women gazed at each other with a scared expression as they rose to the summons. Well, I presume it ain't his fault that he's let to live, said one. I'll tell you what, said Mrs. Beebe. I'll send Josiah around with the cutter to bring Grandpa over to our house and spend the day to get a good dinner. All he needs is Cochrane up. I don't believe he's had an outing in dear knows when, and a change will hearten him. You coming with us, Mrs. Rawls? I'll just step along a piece to Emma Taylor's, said Mrs. Rawls getting down her shawl from a hook. I won't be gone a minute. I'd clean forgot the baby was sick. She glanced into the sitting room, and then, closing the outer door noiselessly behind her, hurried up the street with her friends. She was welcomed at the little white cottage where she stopped by a pretty, worn-looking young woman who came to the door with a baby in her arms and two small children pulling at her skirts. Oh, we're all right, she said cheerfully in answer to Mrs. Rawls. Come in. You'll be surprised to see John around at this time of day. Here he is now. He's staying home a spell on account of Mrs. Rhodes. 
The bachelor boys brought her wood, and Mr. Fellows's coachman shoveled off the snow, but we thought she might like to feel there was a man waiting near to call upon if she wanted anything. Let me take the baby, Emma, said her husband. You're tired, dear. He stretched out his arms and took the child, holding the little white face fondly against his own bearded one. Poor little man. He didn't sleep much last night, kept us both awake. But we didn't care a mite for that. We were so glad we had him. Do you see his light curls? Emma and I think he has a look of Sylvie, Mrs. Rawls. I don't know, but he has, said Mrs. Rawls as she turned toward the outer world once more. Must you go, Mrs. Rawls? It was kind of you to stop in. If you see Mrs. Rhodes, you'll tell her, please, that John's waiting home, so she can feel there's a man near her to call on if she wants for anything. She's bound to be awake now, thought Mrs. Rawls as she hurried home to her guest. Helen had wakened suddenly in the empty, quiet house. She could not, in a sort of sweet, drowsy contentment, understand at once where she was. She gradually realized that a big wooden clock on the mantel ticked with a loud, aggressive noise, that a tea kettle was singing somewhere, and that a large faded red hood hung on the brown-papered wall directly in her line of vision, with a many-flowered pink geranium on a shelf below. She was closing her eyes once more when a loud knock on the outer door startled her instantly into a sitting position. The knock was followed by another, more tentative. Then the door opened, and a footstep was heard inside. Helen jumped hastily up and went toward the kitchen. A tall man stood there, drumming with his fingers absently on the table while he waited. He raised his head quickly as she entered, and she saw that he had a thin, clean-shaven face with firm lips and dark, steady eyes. His dress was the dress of a gentleman. Although Helen had never spoken to him, she knew that this was James Sandersfield. "'I beg your pardon,' he said stiffly. "'I came for Mrs. Rawls. I was sent for Mrs. Rawls.' "'She must have gone out,' said Mrs. Armstrong. "'But I am sure that she will be back soon. "'The message is from Mrs. Rhodes,' said the stranger, taking up his hat. "'Mrs. Rhodes would like Mrs. Rawls to come over to her when she can. "'Is she?' Helen began. "'She is very quiet, very peaceful. "'I did not expect to see her this morning, but she had sent for me. "'She knew.' "'He bit his lip and stopped as if it were very hard to go on. His steady eyes met hers with a certain piteousness in them. I... I carried Sylvie downstairs. She said I was so strong it was a comfort to her to have me do it. He stopped again and turned away his head. I loved the child, he added after a minute, very simply. I am glad you were with her. I know it was a comfort, said Helen. Her eyes roved over the man's tall figure thoughtfully. And I am glad that I was in to take your message, Mr. Sandersfield, she added a little coldly. I am Mrs. Armstrong. I know, I know, he replied with a gesture that was almost rough in its curtness. He stood as if he were about to speak further, then hesitated, and finally turned resolutely away. Good morning, he said as he passed out of the door, but Helen did not answer. To her that pause had been strangely voiceful of Kathleen, she tingled to the very fingertips with the strong current of his thoughts. She could not tell whether she resented it or not. Mrs. Rawls was full of pleasure that her visitor had slept so long. The sleigh was once more waiting for Helen. Tell Mrs. Rhodes I will be with her later, she said as she tucked herself comfortably in and lay back against the red velvet cushions. The glare of the sunshine on the snow dazzled her. Ma'am, said a voice in her ear. The coachman was waiting to let some teams pass. Ma'am, 
May I speak to you? She turned, startled to find a large, gaunt, bearded man standing beside her, with his big hairy hand laid detainingly on the sleigh. His working clothes had all the color worn out of them. What is it? asked Helen, drawing back. As I come up, I seen white crepe and ribbons on the door below, and I just heard you speak her name, ma'am. It's not the gay little felly with the light girls that's dead? Oh, it is, cried Helen, the tears coming to her eyes. The man took off his hat and stood bareheaded in the snow, his lips moving, though Helen heard no sound. He was one of the Lord's own, he said after a minute in a husky voice. Sure he knows best. Not a they that little felly passed us a-working on the road, but he had a word for each man. Sure he was known all over this town. T'was no more than a couple of weeks ago that he brought home Mike O'Brien's little gal that was sitting in a puddle in Dean Street, and she just free of the measles. Ma'am, my heart's sore for the boy's mother, and she a witty. Would ye just tell her that me and me mates would turn our hands to any work for her for the boy's sake? Sure there's no other work to do in this weather. If you will come up to Lawndale this afternoon, Mr. Armstrong will see about some employment for you, said Helen hurriedly. Do you know the place? The big stone house with the pillars? Yes, that is right. And I will tell Mrs. Rhodes. Drive on, Benson. The richly appointed, quiet mansion that she entered was a change indeed, from the meager little house, sickness crowded, where she had been watching for two days and nights, or from the homely room she had just left in the nurse's cottage. The velvet-shod silence seemed almost an alien thing. Not in years had she felt so alive, so warm at the heart with other people's loves and sorrows brought close to it. Habit should not chill her yet into the indifferent, self-centered woman whose cold manner and shy distrust of herself kept her solitary. She was glad when her maid asked her timidly some question about little Sylvie, and answered with a cordiality that surprised herself, although she was always kind, taking note of a cold the girl had, and giving her some simple remedy for it. "'What is it, Margaret?' she asked, seeing that the girl lingered as if she wished to speak. Margaret hesitated. "'Mrs. Armstrong, we do all be feeling so bad for the sweet child that's gone. May the saints comfort his mother. And I was thinking, ma'am, tomorrow is my day out, and if it's not making too bold, I could take my clean cap and apron with me and stay at the house to open the door for the people that'll be trooping there. If you think I might, maybe.' I know she's a lady born, and twould be no more than she was used, to have things decent. You are a good girl, Margaret, said Helen, more moved than she cared to show. Yes, indeed you shall go. Kathleen came in later. Her cheeks were scarlet from the cold wind. Her dark hair was tangled and blown. There was a rushing vigor in her movements as of exuberant young health and bounding impulse. She kissed her quiet sister-in-law impetuously and threw her cap and furs from her before she seated herself by the blazing wood fire. Helen looked at her from a new standpoint. She was trying to fancy that glowing, tumultuous young beauty by the side of James Sandersfield's rugged strength, trying to fancy his steady eyes gazing into those flashing ones. The feeling of repugnance might be lessened, but it was still there. Why, Kathleen had Patricia written in every line of her face, in every curve of her body, in her least gesture. "'I've just come from the country club,' said the girl, shielding her face with one slim hand on the blaze of the fire." What on earth could you do this morning? Play golf in the snow? Oh, we tried to, but it didn't amount to anything. A lot of us got around the fire in the hall and talked. They said, But sister, aren't you tired? Weren't you up all night? Have you been home long? I did sit up all night, said Helen, but I am not tired, 
and I have been home for some time. And she, or Mrs. Rhodes, I left her very quiet, dear. There, said Kathleen stormily, we could talk of nothing else this morning but darling, darling little Sylvie, and of her. Of course they don't all know Mrs. Rhodes, but everyone had seen him, at any rate. It seems so dreadful for her to lose all she had in the world. She isn't very young, is she? About my age, dear. Well, that's not old, of course, but still. What I can't make out, sister, is why she should be afflicted in this way. Mrs. Harper had known her, like you, ever since she was a little girl, and she has had so many troubles. All her people died soon after she was married, and her husband was not. Nice. And he lost all her money before he died, and she has always been so good and lovely and patient and uncomplaining, so earnestly striving to do right, so that Mrs. Harper says she has been an example to everyone. Why should she have this terrible, terrible blow fall upon her? Why should her sweet, darling little child be taken away? What has she done that she should be punished so? It seems wrong. Wrong. I don't understand it. I'm afraid I don't either, said Helen very low. She put her hand on her heart for a minute and looked up, smiling a little wistfully. Her own trouble was so old that people had forgotten it. We nearly got crying, pursued Kathleen. All the girls, I mean. Harvey Spencer tried to make us laugh. He told jokes, horrid ones. Oh, how silly he was. I hate society men. But it seemed as if we couldn't get off the subject. First one thing brought it up, and then another. Everybody wants to do something for Mrs. Rhodes. What I was going to tell you was that Mary Barber said she believed that sweet little Sylvie was taken because his mother made an idol of him. That you shouldn't love anybody so much. That it was wrong. I don't believe it, sister. I don't believe it. You can't love anyone too much. People forget what love means, and it seems unnatural to them when we love as much as we can. Oh, you may look at me. I think of a great, great many things I never tell. You and my brother Oren, who have done everything and had everything, you think me silly and romantic, but I am wiser than you. It's because you've forgotten. Why, there's nothing but love that makes life worth living, said young Kathleen, her voice thrilling through the room. I shall never try to love only a little, no matter what happens, but as much, as much, as much, always, as God will let me, if I die for it myself. She went over to Helen and flung herself down on the floor beside her, and laid her head in Helen's lap. He will let you, said Helen with an unsteady voice. Something in her tone made the girl raise her head suddenly. The rise met in a long look and a deep rose overspread Kathleen's face before she hid it again. To the elder woman had come quite unbidden a picture of a man carrying tenderly in his strong arms the white, still body of a little dead child. She would like to have told Kathleen if shyness had not held her tongue. After all, he did not seem quite unworthy, if Oren thought. He made a grimace when she told him in the brief half-hour they had together before she left the house. It is only the conclusion I had been coming to, he said. There is nothing personally against the man. I almost wish there were. I knew Kathleen would be too much for us. Kathleen and love. But how she can want him, I cannot see. Ah, but Oren, we don't either of us have to marry him, said his wife. I have just found out that it's Kathleen's happiness, not ours, that is at stake. What are you looking at? 
He had walked over to her dressing table, where there stood the faded photograph of a little child, with a vase of flowers near it. He gazed steadily at it without speaking. I always thought this better than the large portrait, he said at last huskily. You have not had it out in some time. No, she replied. The frame wanted repairing, and the picture had grown so dim I, I couldn't bear to see it some way. But today, oh, Orin, I have been so longing to have someone remember. I have never forgotten, he said. Did you think that? It is only that I am so busy. There are so many things that crowd upon me that I don't get a chance to tell you. I gave a thousand dollars to the children's hospital today for little Sylvie's sake, and our child's. Why, Helen, 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 poor girl, poor girl, I'll have to look after you more. I shall not allow you to go again tonight. But it has done me more good than anything else in this world, said his wife. I've been one of the dead souls in prison. It's not for sorrow that I'm crying, Orin, not for sorrow alone. Oh, for so much else, dear. And now I must go and I think my man is downstairs for some work from you, and I'll say goodbye until tomorrow. When Helen reached her friend's house, she found a clergyman just descending the steps. It was beginning to snow again in the dusk, and he buttoned his overcoat tightly around his spare figure as he came forward to assist her from the sleigh. Mrs. Rhodes told me that she was expecting you, he said. Then have you seen her? Yes, for a few minutes. He sighed and stood meditatively, looking up the street. Judge Shillaber has just been here. I was surprised to see him. He so seldom goes out, and never seemed to take any interest in his neighbors. But perhaps I should not say that, he added hastily. Everyone must feel the blow that has fallen here. The circumstances are so peculiarly sad. The ways of the Lord are very mysterious. As he spoke, he raised his face, which was thin and careworn because the sorrows of his people weighed very heavily upon him. The ways of the Lord are very mysterious. We must have faith, Mrs. Armstrong. More faith. Yes, indeed, cried Helen. I feel that. I would like to speak to you about... But I must not keep you out here. There is Mrs. Rawls. Another time. He hurried off down the street, while Helen found herself drawn inside the door by Mrs. Rawls and into the little dining room, where the blinds were open somewhat, now that the evening dusk had settled down. The room was warm and quiet with a heavy perfume of flowers loading the air. "'Such a time as we've had,' said Mrs. Rawls in a loud whisper. "'Me and Miss Loomis and Ellen Grant has just had our hands full seeing people. Ellen's as deaf as a post, but she would stay, and she sat by the window and let us know when she seen anyone coming up the steps. Miss Dunham, she spelled us for a while. "'You never see anything like it in all your born days, Miss Armstrong. "'The whole town's been here.' and carriages driving up. Folks, some of them, Miss Rhodes, didn't even know, coming to inquire or leave cards. There's been port wine sent for her, and tokay, and chicken broth, and jellies. I thought there had been enough set last week for him, but they're coming yet. What to do with them, I don't know, for she won't touch nothing. And there's flowers, 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 from them great white lilies from Colonel Penn's greenhouse to a little wilty sprig of pink geranium that one of them colored children at the corner brought tied with a little ribbon for little Mars Sylvie. The child was crying when she came. I filled her full of broth and jelly before she went home. Some of the things has on him for Sylvie's mother that pleases her best of all. And the dear child lies there so peaceful and sweet. 
she put the geranium by him herself. But she's waiting in there to see you, I know. Such a slender, drooping figure in its black garments that came to meet Helen. Such patience, such gentleness in the pale face. The tears rose once more to Helen's eyes as she put her protecting arms around her friend and held her close in a long embrace. I'm glad you've come, said Anne Rhodes at last. I want you to sit here by me. We shall be alone for a little while. There is something I want to say while I can. Her voice was very sweet and low, and her tearless eyes were luminous. Let me take your hand, this one. It held my darling's hand when he was dying. I knew. Dear hand, dear hand. She held it close to her cheek. After a moment, she went on. Such love, such goodness. I never dreamed of anything like it. People should be so good. I want you to tell everyone, all who have done the least thing for my little child's sake, yes, or who have wanted to do anything, that never while my life lasts, I hope it won't be long, but never while it lasts will I forget them. Never will I cease to ask God to bless them, to reward them sevenfold into their bosom. I have been praying today, when I could pray, that he would teach me how to help others, that the world might be better because my little child had lived in it, and I had had such joy. Helen, will you not forget? No, said Helen. She drew her friend's head to her shoulder, and they spoke no more. It grew darker and darker in the room where they sat. But in the next chamber, the moonlight poured through an opening in the curtains and shone upon the lovely face of the child whose life had been a delight, whose memory was a blessing, whose death touched the spring of love in every heart, and, for one little heavenly space, made men know that they were brothers. End of chapter 10